This is Protocol Breakdown on the CBC EMP Podcast. This is Tony Held, and you're listening to Protocol Breakdown, hosted on the Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals Podcast. If this is your first time listening, uh, each show I break down a pre-hospital treatment protocol, what our goals of care should be, the medications we should be using, and the interventions we should be expecting. If you're a return listener, you already knew that, and thanks for coming back. I know you've been wondering where we've been, and to be honest with you, I've just been busy. This show has actually been drafted and just waiting to be recorded uh, for a couple months now, uh, but we are back in action, uh, ready to get you guys the FOMED tidbits you're dying for. Okay, so today's topic is delirium tremens. I have to give you guys a heads up that I am not a biochem major. I am also not really a neuroscience guru. So some items will be simplified uh, to get to the specifics of what we should be doing and why. All right, disclaimer aside, here we go. What are DTs? Well, I didn't really know what they were before I researched this show. I mean, I knew what they were. Uh, Delirium tremens are a variety of symptoms, but how do they happen? Where do they come from? Well, to understand the things that we see, I think we should dig down to the cause because it might not be what you think. So first of all, what does ethanol do? We most commonly associate DTs to alcohol withdrawal. Uh, So we should really explore what exactly ethanol does in the first place. Well, it has loads of effects, but the most significant is its binding to GABA-A receptors. The most important thing to know about GABA is that it is responsible for slowing us down. The majority of our CNS-depressing drugs directly affect the GABA receptor sites. Ethanol's other chief effect, and again there's a ton of them, is decrease the excitation of the NMDA receptors. When NMDA receptors are activated, it speeds us up. So NMDA turns it up, GABA turns it down. Ethanol depresses NMDA stimulation and activates GABA. So a double whammy. Okay, so then what? Tolerance and then dependence usually develop after persistent exposure. Interestingly, the amount of exposure required is variable across individuals. So some people it takes very little to develop uh, dependence and tolerance. Uh, Some people can have uh, excessive exposure and never develop those traits. So this appears to be through two main mechanisms. Uh, GABA receptors become more difficult to stimulate through a pretty complicated biochemical cascade. Uh, Just know that they become more difficult to activate and therefore uh, subjects begin to consume larger quantities of alcohol to achieve the same sensation of intoxication. We said before that ethanol inhibits excitation of the NMDA receptor, so the body recognizes this reduced excitation and then can create more receptors in order to return to its normal state of arousal. So it kind of remodels those receptor sites. You can see that these responses by the body are leading us to a scenario in which our patient is consuming escalating amounts of alcohol to achieve the same sensation of intoxication. 
It is at this point that we switch into dependence. This remodeling of the body's GABA and NMDA receptors have now created a situation in which removal of alcohol causes under-stimulation of GABA and over-stimulation of NMDA because there's too many NMDA receptors and uh, the GABA receptors have kind of become numb. So now we're turning up NMDA too far and not supplying GABA with enough incentive to slow us down. Okay, you said that you were going to tell me what DTs were, but that was really the basis of ethanol and then withdrawal. So what are DTs? Well, DTs are not the same as alcohol withdrawal. I'll go through that first so you can see where the clear delineation is. Alcohol withdrawal is more of a continuum that a patient progresses down. So minor withdrawal symptoms include insomnia, tremors, anxiety, GI upset, headache, diaphoresis, and palpitations. Well, that sounds like nearly all of our alcoholics by the time we see them. That's when they're calling us saying they're having DTs. These symptoms set in within about six hours of their last drink and typically resolve within 24 to 48 hours. These symptoms are also appropriate to treat with supportive care and or outpatient therapies. So those symptoms in and of themselves are not really saying that this patient is at risk of uh, seizures or DTs. They're just at the front end of that continuum. Now withdrawal seizures are not the same as DTs either. News to me in preparing for this podcast. These are grand mal seizures and typically occur 12 to 48 hours after their last drink. They can occur as early as two hours after their last drink and are more common uh, to begin after the age of 40. Seizures progress to DTs only about a third of the time. Alcoholic hallucinosis, another stage along this continuum. Again, not the same as DTs. More news to me in preparing for this podcast. Hallucinations may develop as a symptom of withdrawal within 12 to 24 hours of the last drink. They typically resolve again within 24 to 48 hours. These hallucinations are usually visual, though some auditory and tactile sensations may develop. Okay, so now I know you're thinking I've described everything that you thought were DTs, so if those aren't DTs, then what is delirium tremens? In short, the really bad stuff is what qualifies as DTs. Tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, plus supercharged versions of all of the other withdrawal symptoms. Hyperventilation is frequent and may crash pH to the point of decreased cerebral blood flow. Hypovolemia, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and hypophosphatemia are also common. DTs set in, and this is a really important, approximately 48 to 96 hours after the last drink. So we should be looking for these really bad things to start setting in two to four days after they have uh, ceased their alcohol intake. The incidence is low, only about 5% of patients experiencing withdrawal symptoms of any kind will develop into DTs. Mortality is also low, but only if being treated. So individuals attempting to defeat DTs on their own may have a mortality as high as 37%. So you basically have a one in three shot of dying if you're going to fight DTs at home. Okay, so let's get to the meat of what we do. So your pre-hospital goals of care, we want to recognize what stage of alcohol withdrawal we're looking at, manage the airway when needed, and be aggressive in managing cardiac overload. 
So what medications are we looking at first of all? Thiamine and glucose uh, is kind of a go-to. Malnourishment is common in alcohol abuse. It inhibits gluconeogenesis but does not inhibit glycogenolysis. You may remember that from the hypoglycemia management podcast. Uh, Binge drinking of alcohol results in depleted glycogen stores and prohibits the body from creating glucose from alternate sources. So that is kind of the the whole kit and caboodle on uh, malnourishment from alcohol. You can also get uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy. So uh, neurologic symptoms caused by biochemical lesions of the central nervous system after exhaustion of B vitamin reserves. That is our definition. It is characterized by ophthalmoplegia. See if I can say that five times. Ataxia and confusion. Those are the classic three, but only about 10% of patients exhibit all three features. And again, that's primarily from exhaustion of those B vitamin reserves. Next med on the list is benzodiazepines. Uh, Commonly accepted dosing that I was able to find in the literature uh, being Ativan, uh, two to four milligrams IV every 15 to 20 minutes until resolution of those symptoms, uh, that being the DT symptoms like hypertension uh, and tachycardia. Valium uh, is, has classically been the go-to medication. Uh, the dosing on that is five to 10 milligrams IV every five to 10 minutes. Massive doses, uh, have been needed for initial symptom control, uh, sometimes in excess of 500 milligrams, uh, which with large doses also over the next 48 hours, uh, greater than 2,000 milligrams. Uh, Uncommon benzos, which uh, are also the only go-to benzo on my truck, uh, would be Versed. So the only dose I was able to pull out for Versed was 2 to 4 milligrams IV every 5 to 10 minutes. The reason that that's uncommon is because Versed has a uh, shorter action period, so Ativan uh, and Valium tend to be more beneficial. Another common medication uh, we find our uh, DT patients or even uh, just alcoholic patients receiving is a banana bag. Uh, So I started breaking down what all was contained within a banana bag and what each thing was there for. Um, But to be honest, uh, I've seen less and less of them being used over the years. I mean, when I first started, uh, every single drunk got a banana bag. Uh, and I've certainly been seeing fewer of them. So I wondered why that was uh, and found a great article from Academic Life in EM. Uh, I've linked that in the show notes and is a really cool read. Um, so maybe banana bags were a good idea uh, with no evidence to really support them. So go check that out. Um, so then... What other medications might we be using? Uh, Well, other meds that hit the GABA receptors um, because they're uh, less sensitive, so we need to to hit those GABA receptors. That's why we're using those benzos. Uh, So phenobarbital, propofol, and atomidate all hit uh, GABA receptors and may have some utility in dealing with uh, DTs. The point here is that we shouldn't really be afraid of how much we need to administer, only that we're managing the side effects uh, that those doses created. So we have to be ready um, to uh, to handle that. Okay, so what about ketamine? Um, yeah, ketamine's good for everything, right? This is a pre-hospital talk, um, so maybe it should be used in DTs too? Uh, maybe. Uh, 
So it seems counterintuitive, to be honest. Uh, you've got a dissociative medication that also increases uh, cardiac output, at least briefly. Um, there's some information flying around showing that concurrent usage of low-dose ketamine with benzos can decrease the total amount of benzos required to treat that patient. However, there's also data stating that ketamine's usage in cocaine overdose is ineffective. Uh, while DTs and cocaine overdose are different, they're alike enough that I think more investigation is needed before pursuing. Let's also take into account that emergency, excuse me, emergence phenomenon seems highly dependent on the condition of the patient as they're going down. If they're in tremendous distress, uh, such as in uh, alcohol-induced hallucinations, um, maybe not the best thing to have going into uh, a dissoci dissociative state. I want to briefly touch on the uh, CWA score, so that's Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol Scale. Um, this is a questionnaire that scores withdrawal symptoms and gives us a generalized estimate of severity. Um, typically, it's uh, used to evaluate whether we think this patient might develop DTs and whether they're going to need an ICU bed. Uh, I've got a link to that in the show notes. Um, please familiarize yourself with the uh, categories on there. I don't think you'll be surprised by anything that it uh, scores on there. Um, but if you hear CWA score, that's what they're talking about. Okay, so what is contraindicated for DTs? Uh, well, the first thing on the list is alcohol. Um, so this is controversial and not recommended by any guideline. Uh, I would say this is a relative contraindication. Um, obviously, titrated doses of alcohol could stave off DTs. Uh, the concern here is that you don't really know uh, where you're going to find yourself in that alcohol withdrawal continuum. Um, but I would say in a resource-limited environment, this might be something to consider. If you have any of the medicines we discussed before, use them because they uh, definitely are of greater benefit uh, and are also of uh, greater likelihood to get your patient through this problem rather than prolonging it. So Haldol is definitely contraindicated. So it reduces the seizure threshold uh, and per up-to-date may also interfere with heat dissipation. Uh, so you may end up with a hyperthermic seizing withdrawing patient. Not so good. Okay, so what interventions should we be expecting now that we've got medications uh, out of the way? So airway management is uh, first and foremost uh, and really our only primary uh, intervention that we have to be worried about. Although seizures associated with alcohol withdrawal are technically benign, the potential for aspiration certainly isn't. So pay attention to your patient. I have had patients with alcohol withdrawal seizures that turned blue, vomited, and even remained apneic after opening their airway. Be diligent and treat appropriately. Understand that prior to being in delirium tremens, their alcohol withdrawal symptoms should be self-limited. However, once a patient is in delirium tremens, the rules change a bit. If they require massive benzo doses to finally get their heart rate and blood pressure down, intubation is certainly a potential requirement. I know what you're thinking. I'm talking to you, Liz Kendrick. Is this likely to be an issue in the field? Having a patient under enough sedation that we should consider airway control. Well, I'll tell you this much. I am always worried and always expecting things will turn south. I would rather know where this is headed than not. 
Okay, so in review, our pre-hospital goals of care should be to recognize what stage of alcohol withdrawal we are looking at. Use your knowledge of timeframes and symptoms. Alcohol withdrawal is pretty easy to treat, but DTs are a bit more complicated. Manage the airway when needed. In seizures and DTs, airway management can be complicated by vomiting and apnea. Do not delay basic airway maneuvers. Be aggressive in managing cardiac overload. The longer these patients' hearts are cranking at high output, the more potential for tachydysrhythmias and death. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our discussion on delirium tremens. You can catch all the show notes for this episode at cbcemp.proboards.com. Spark a discussion while you're there. You can subscribe to my show and all the other CBC EMP podcasts on any podcast player, including iTunes or SoundCloud. Just search for CBC EMP. This is Tony Held with Protocol Breakdown for Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals. I'll catch you again soon.